My husband John and I are going to do the Advent reading. There is an insert, um, a green insert in your bulletin if you want to look at it that way. The bold words are what you're going to read, um, and then they're also going to be on the screen. All right. Uh, good morning. The, the third candle of Advent points us to the first people to learn of the promised one's birth common shepherds who were seen as outcasts and undesirables, yet in God's grace, he reached out to them and loved the unloved to redeem the unredeemed. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This candle reminds us that on the first Christmas night, God revealed himself to those unloved by this world. Remind us, Lord, that in spite of our unlovable condition, in Christ you love those who trust in the Incarnate One. Where are the wise, the scribes, the debaters of this age? Not many wise, many strong, nor many noble. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He has chosen the common and despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are so that no one should boast before God. How fitting that the first evangelists were not people of great wisdom or stature, but common people with uncommonly good news. The shepherds said, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, what the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherd candle, therefore, teaches us to join our voices in loud exclamation for his boundless grace. Rejoice, shout for joy, our king is coming to us. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble. The prophet has said, I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. Rejoice and shout, for the king comes to us. He is the righteous Savior. My name is Andy. I'm an elder at North Shore Church. And this morning I'll be reading scripture and prayer. This morning's scripture is from Luke 2, verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, holy and loving, creator and sustainer of this earth, we give you this morning our praises. As your people, we with one voice declare that you are our God. Holy, 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 you are described in Scripture, and that is how we know you existing without sin and described as radiant love. God, we come this morning in need of your help. We ask for forgiveness of our sins in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. God, please help us to focus on you this Christmas season. Our hearts can so easily be led astray by earthly things. And as we focus on them, we can put you aside. Holy Spirit, Move each of us to place our attentions on God. Help us to move our created idols out of our hearts. And this Christmas, keep Jesus front and center in all that we do and say. Help us, your church, to put Jesus on display for the world to see that he is the reason for celebration. And Lord, now I ask for your healing of all in this body that need your help. And I ask this in your son Jesus' name. And I also ask for your continued blessing on North Shore Church and the members who gather for worship of you. Lord, keep the attacks of the devil from this body. Keep distractions away and enable us this day to fully focus on your glory. I ask also for your spirit to guide Duncan as he brings your word to us this morning. Let the words he speaks be yours and allow our hearts to be changed as we hear them. Lord, we thank you for all that you will do as we gather this morning. Amen. Well, as you heard from the scripture that was read, we're taking a break from the story of David in the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time over the next few weeks thinking about the birth of Jesus. Uh, Andy mentioned in his prayer, 
following Christ in the Christmas season is hard. As we know, the culture has mostly removed Christ from Christmas, and because we live in that culture, that means that if we're to keep Christ at the center of Christmas and our preparations, we're swimming upstream against the secular Christmas tide. We celebrate Advent, certainly, to honor Christ, but also just to remind us that this is what it's about in the weeks leading up to Christmas. But we're also today going to reinforce and celebrate what God has done through the Incarnation by looking into this wonderful text that Andy read. This section of Luke's Gospel that was read for us describes an event that took place 40 days after Jesus was born. Joseph and Mary, who are all throughout the Gospels and repeatedly portrayed as devout, law-abiding Jews, they journeyed to the temple in Jerusalem for what Luke tells us is their purification. Now, according to Old Testament law, we know that probably included at least three separate religious rituals. First, as the text tells us, they were following the law of Moses from Leviticus chapter 12 that required new mothers to be purified from their ceremonially unclean state that happened as a result of childbirth. The Old Testament, if you've read much of it, has many laws that dictate what put a follower of God in the Old Testament in a state of ritual uncleanness. Certain things made a Jew ritually or ceremonially unclean, like touching a dead body. Giving birth was one of those things that made a woman ritually unclean because at birth there's an issue of blood. And just as a Jewish woman was unclean during her menstrual cycle, she was unclean according to the law after childbirth. The Old Testament law gave detailed instructions how a person in a state of ritual or ceremonially unclean state could be restored to a place of ritual cleanness. If Joseph had helped deliver the baby, as he seems to have probably done, he would have been needing ceremonial cleansing as well because he had contact with blood as well. For Mary and Joseph to be restored to this ritually clean state, according to the law, they needed to offer to God a sacrifice as a sin offering. The law prescribed that a lamb would be offered, but an exception was made, which you heard in the text, for poor people who could not afford a lamb. Poor people could sacrifice either a pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the Lord. And so what Luke is doing there in part is he's saying, Mary and Joseph don't have any money. They were poor. The second religious ritual required by Old Testament law and that Mary and Joseph are almost certainly observing here is they went to the temple to present their firstborn child to the Lord. Again, this is stipulated too in places like Exodus chapter 13. You remember that in the Exodus, the final plague that caused Pharaoh to liberate the Jews from their enslavement was the death of the Egyptians firstborn, right? Now God spared the firstborn of the Jews who placed the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. One way that God chose to remind the Jews of that fact, of that work of redemption, is that he claimed all firstborn Jewish infants as his own. And so they literally belonged to him, and so they were set apart as holy. And to reinforce that truth, he commanded in the law that Jewish parents bring their firstborn children, male or female, into the temple 
to redeem their firstborn infants, essentially to buy them back from God. They belong to God. I have to buy them back from God at a ransom price, according to the law of five shekels. A third ritual Joseph and Mary observe here, just as Hannah did in the Old Testament with her baby boy Samuel, is they dedicated or they consecrated their child to the Lord's service. Joseph and Mary publicly offered baby Jesus to God for his service. That's what's meant here in verse 22 when it says they presented him to the Lord. One point of this is that although this was a celebratory time for Mary and Joseph, it was also costly. They had to purchase a dove and offer it to the Lord. They didn't have any money. They had to pay five shekels to redeem their firstborn son. But by far the most costly thing is they gave their son Jesus to God for his service, and they had no idea how costly that would be to them or him when they did that. While they were in the temple courts in Jerusalem to perform these rituals, they're met by these two remarkable people who'd been earnestly expecting the Messiah to be born. When they saw that baby Jesus, they knew by the Spirit of God revealing it to them, this was the expected Messiah they'd been waiting for. Simeon and Anna represent a fairly small group of people among the Jews at the time of Jesus' birth who walked very closely with God and who knew that the Jewish Messiah was going to be coming very soon. These were not, Simeon and Anna were not formal religious leaders. They weren't scribes. They weren't Pharisees. Most of those people in that set were not walking closely with God. They represent this tiny remnant of genuinely devout Jewish people who had discovered what it really was to know God and love God and walk with God. The average Jew probably would have written off these two elder saints as fanatics or maybe a little bit on the kooky side. I mean, most of the Jews would have wondered what was possibly wrong with two people who spent all or most of their time in or around the temple. That's strange. In an age when the religion of many Jews was external and formal and legal and frankly dead, Jews like Anna and Simeon stood out. They were just the kind of people that God would have used to do this. They were genuinely filled with the Spirit, and they were openly in love with God and living for Him. They weren't kooks. They'd simply discovered the kind of special relationship a devout believer can have with God by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's mentioned three times here in this text. As we see with so many other people who are part of the landscape of Jesus' birth narratives, there's nothing special about these people except what was special in their hearts. These two strange people were in God's inner circle, and God spoke to them in intimate ways about himself and his redemptive plan. And there's a lot that these two could teach us about the essence of true devotion, especially as it relates to the issue of what it means to live for God in old age and persevere to the end. These two don't know anything about the contemporary trend among elderly believers today who feel that it's appropriate to retire from the Lord's work, or I need to back up and back off and make room for some of the younger people to do the work of the Lord. They, didn't, they hadn't read that book, okay? Their zeal for God burns as brightly in their elder years, and it was probably over 100, as it did when their muscles were strong and their eyesight was sharp. 
However, if we spent most of our time looking strictly at these two people, we would completely miss Luke's point. The main truth that Luke wants us to see here is what these two people reveal here about this newly born Messiah through these prophetic words and their prophetic responses that they give in response to Jesus. It's their Holy Spirit-inspired responses to this infant Messiah and what he brings to people that we want to focus on this morning. And this is so rich. Let's think about three truths that these two senior saints, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us about who Jesus is and what he brings to people. And they're the same things that he brings to people today. First, we see Jesus brings consolation or deliverance to people who look to him in faith. Jesus brings consolation or deliverance to people who look to him in faith. In verse 25, we see that Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. You hear this word around Christmas time. We, one of our hymns this morning had the word consolation. You don't hear it very much outside of this time, okay? Consolation of Israel was going to come with the appearance of the infant Messiah who he had swept up in his arms. He was waiting for that, and now that wait was over for the consolation. Later in verse 38, we see a very similar expectation coming from Anna. Luke tells us, And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Redemption and consolation very close to one another in terms of what they mean. Anna and Simeon and the rest of this righteous remnant of Jews who were alive at this time were with great expectancy looking for the consolation, redemption of Israel, and those words both carry the meaning deliverance from slavery, from oppression. Deliverance from slavery and oppression. This includes the promise of God's comfort for those who have suffered and need comfort because of their oppression. What this is talking about is voiced, how the Messiah is going to bring that, is voiced in many times in the Old Testament, but maybe the best is in Isaiah chapter 61, a very familiar text. The prophet says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus quoted this text in Luke chapter 4. Some people call it the Nazareth Manifesto because he was in Nazareth at the time in the synagogue. And he says, this is why I came. Today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. Okay, so this incredibly bold claim. Well, the Jews very much saw themselves, and God did as well, as brokenhearted, enslaved, imprisoned, in mourning, and without joy. The expectation of the coming Messiah was that he would come and he would bind up their broken hearts, he would set them free from captivity, he would open the prison doors, comfort their mourning, and restore their joy. For the vast majority of the Jews at the time of Jesus, the Messiah would do that through the use of military power and might. That's what they expected. They expected these things, but they expected them to come through military power, political means. He would bring about national and political liberation, 
to these people who had been for so long living under foreign occupiers, and that really bothered them. This is what the average Jew saw to be the cause of their various oppressions that they suffered. It was a political, it was a military oppression. If only these Romans would get off our back, everything would be okay. The Messiah is going to come and take care of that, and our oppression will be gone. That's what they thought. The Messiah would come and break this yoke of political oppression that had been on them on and off for 600 years. That kind of expectation was rooted in many Old Testament texts that spoke about the liberation of national Israel, and Simeon and Anna had obviously been sharing in that hope. But we're going to look back at those through the lens of the gospel. And we know through the lens of the gospel that when Jesus came in his first advent, God didn't send him to bring political freedom. He came to bring a much more important kind of liberation and comfort, spiritual freedom. He came to defeat a much more intimidating and lethal enemy than the Roman army. He came to deliver all people from spiritual enslavement, from sin and Satan, and all people suffer that, whether they know the source of their suffering or not. He came to bind up hearts broken by sin and the human wreckage that results from it. He came to liberate people from the bondage of spiritual oppression by dark spiritual powers they don't even realize are afflicting and warring against them. This Messiah would bring comfort to those who had been ravaged by the spiritual devastation of sin. He brought a level of joy that runs much deeper than political freedom could ever bring because his joy isn't dependent upon any outward political circumstance. The joy and deliverance that he brings come from hearts that have been been liberated to do what God originally designed them to do. They've been liberated, hearts have been liberated to do what God originally designed them to do. That's liberation, to be restored. This is joy coming from hearts that have been liberated to fulfill the purpose God created for us, to serve and worship God as our Heavenly Father and our loving King. One reason the Jews completely misunderstood that Jesus through his death on the cross, would bring about spiritual deliverance and consolation was because they were blind to the biggest cause of their suffering. They didn't know that the cause of their deepest, most severe oppression was the self-inflicted suffering they had consistently brought upon themselves as they selfishly lived for themselves and living life pursuing what they wanted. This is what brought this misunderstanding to them. And today, it still brings into people's lives grief and alienation and enslavement. In other words, just like so many people today, they weren't looking for the cure brought by the Messiah in part because they were mistaken about the cause of their disease, okay? They didn't realize that the pollution within their hearts injected in them by sin and Satan was far more destructive than anything on an occupying army might bring to them. In Jesus' first advent, he redeemed, he consoled, and he delivered those who will place their trust in him from our biggest adversary. In his second advent, when he returns, Jesus will completely destroy Satan, and he will provide all of these other external political freedoms as well. Although the Jews saw this Messiah as coming to redeem their own people, and he was, 
Simeon also reveals a very common Old Testament theme here, and that this, this redeeming work would not just be for the Jews, but would be for all people, Jews and Gentiles. This is because all people everywhere, including those who may not have experienced very much political oppression or enslavement, all people have suffered spiritual enslavement, whether they realize it or not. We see this in verse 32. Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesies about this Messiah, that he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, scholars tell us that Luke is hearkening back to a passage in Isaiah 60 that we read in our call to worship. The prophet says there, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's what he's referring to in an abbreviated form. That tells us the relationship between light and glory in Simeon's prophecy is this. The radiant light of the Messiah will arise in Israel. He's going to be a Jew. In that sense, the Messiah will be to their glory, as Simeon says. But that glory will not be for Jews alone, but as Isaiah says, the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The truth that God has always intended to bring the Gentiles to the light of truth is revealed all over the place in the Old Testament. Just one text that Paul quotes in Romans is in Isaiah 55. He says, behold, you shall call a nation Gentile nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Gentiles are going to run to God through Jesus Christ, and they did, and they are. Gentiles, as well as Jews, experience broken hearts and brutal bondage and mourning and emptiness that sin brings, and the Messiah will be for all the people to deliver all of us from the ravages of sin and Satan and death. A second truth God reveals through Simeon as it relates to the coming Messiah is Jesus brings temporary division and pain in his wake. Jesus brings temporary division and pain in his wake. This prophecy that he gives has two sides to it. One celebratory and rich, and the other is pretty sobering. Listen, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. What that means is that individual Jews, based on how they relate to Jesus the Messiah, will experience either a great fall or a great rising. For those who accept him as their Messiah and submit to his loving rule for their lives, they're going to be blessed and exalted. For others who refuse to acknowledge him as their Lord and Master, they're going to be brought to ruin by their encounter with him. Some will welcome Christ as their Savior and find eternal life, while others will oppose Christ and reap destruction. This is an astonishing claim being made about Jesus. It's old hat to us, but if you're hear, hearing this for the first time, this would have been amazing. This is why it says that Mary and Joseph were freaked out by this. They were amazed by what he said. Simeon tells Mary that the decisive factor in whether people in Israel will ultimately experience wonderful things or horrible things is how they respond to your baby. That's amazing. 
Luke will later reveal the same truth. He says, everyone who falls on that stone, and it's talking about the cornerstone Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. For some, Christ will be the cornerstone that is serving as a solid foundation of a life of joy and blessing. For others who short-sightedly refuse to submit to his loving rule, he's going to be an instrument of eternal judgment as they are crushed by him. Simeon says in verse 34 that Jesus will be appointed or chosen by God to be a sign that is opposed. That pretty much covers his adult ministry, right? Right? God never intended that Jesus would be a popular or widely received Messiah. He called him as a great prophet. And prophets are never very profitable or popular. They tell people things that they don't want to hear about themselves. They make claims that cut against the flow of the culture, and they're opposed by the people in that culture. That's what prophets are. It's ironic, it's really ironic, that in the West, Jesus enjoys a relatively high level of respect in our culture. The biggest reason for that is that the culture has no idea what he taught. Many in the culture would harbor an opinion similar to this. Oh, we're really not into Christianity, certainly not into the church and Christians, but we deeply admire Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if we all just lived by the Sermon on the Mount? They say that because they haven't the foggiest notion of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And if they read the Sermon on the Mount, they would be deeply devastated and they would be offended. If they really knew the radically controversial things that Jesus really did teach, he would have been written off a long time ago as a religious extremist. In the second half of verse 35, after a personal word to Mary, we're going to look at it in a moment, Simeon says that because of this Messiah, thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. This is really important. The implication in the context is clear. Jesus is not coming to stir up any hatred for God but he is coming to reveal or expose the hatred for God and for righteousness that is in the hearts of people to begin with. He's not stirring up anger. He's not stirring up hatred for God. What he is doing is he's shining a light on what is there already, okay? Most people would never admit to hating God because they don't harbor any personal animus toward him. But if you understand hate the way the Bible describes hate, they're clearly hating him. And the Bible teaches this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is quoting a number of Old Testament texts about the state of fallen humanity. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is not saying that about this special class of really rotten people. He's saying that's humanity. Okay? Not exactly a positive assessment of the human condition. But Simeon is telling Mary that when people have a genuine encounter with Jesus, he's going to reveal the dismal condition of their hearts. Those people who genuinely encounter Jesus see the truth about themselves and by God's grace humble themselves and recognize that Jesus has come to save them out of that dreadful condition. And then they're going to run to him for deliverance. 
those people who ever in their heart do not see or they refuse to see their own desperate need of him, to them, he's going to expose their pride and their wickedness and they're going to oppose him and all who stand with him. This happens all the time. A person comes from a family that doesn't hate God, but they don't love God. They don't go to church. They're not religious people at all. They're nice people, but they're not religious people with God. And one person has an encounter with Jesus. And for the first time, they see their sin for the rebellion against God that it is. And by God's grace, they repent and they begin to joyfully live for Jesus. What happens in their family? Their surrounding friends and family, who up to this point had never shown any real outward hostility to Jesus, now reveal real opposition to what he's done in their friend or family member. In many cases, this is simply an acting out of what Simeon prophesies here about Jesus. And that is, for many who see themselves as just fine, thank you, they are, as Jesus meets them, given a revelation that they are not a follower of Christ. And when they have a revelation through a follower of Christ and they see Jesus, that will ignite within them an opposition to Christ that had always been in their hearts, but they didn't know about it. And it comes out. One scholar says the person of Jesus Christ reveals people's true colors in a way that is more generic, that is revealed by people who talk about God or religion or spirituality. People talk about God and religion and spirituality all the time, even in the public sphere. But if you begin to talk about Jesus, people will begin to assume you may be one of those nuts. That's not just because some Christians have made fools of themselves. It's because Jesus reveals the true state of people's hearts. And they buck against that. Now let's turn to this poignant and personal word from God that Simeon gives to Mary in verse 35. He says to her that Jesus will bring her, uns bring her unspeakable pain with this cryptic statement, and a sword will pierce through your soul also. This is a very powerful prophetic statement, but it's even more gripping when you understand the word that Simeon uses for sword here. There were basically two kinds of swords referenced in the New Testament. One is a large knife used for slaughtering animals and butchering meat. The other is a much longer sword with a broad blade sharpened on both edges. It was worn over a soldier's back. That's the sword that Simeon prophesies will pierce Mary's heart. At the very least, this refers to the pain that Mary experienced as she saw her beloved son tortured and murdered in his passion. It may be much more than that. The rest of the New Testament teaches that though Mary's sword was obviously unique to her, Jesus brings temporary pain into the lives of all of his followers. So Simeon reveals that Jesus will bring consolation and deliverance and great joy to those who rightly relate to him, but he also says, He's going to bring interpersonal division and personal pain to those who genuinely embrace him. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Any genuine follower of Christ knows the pain involved in walking with him. It's there sometimes. We're not talking about persecution on account of Jesus. This is the personal pain that believers experience as a result of their love for God. 
If we genuinely prize and treasure Christ, then anything in our life that doesn't honor him, anything in our life that threatens our intimate fellowship with him, anything that we're tempted to rely on or trust in or treasure more than him, then out of our love for him, those things need to be cut out of our hearts. Genuine believers know this, and they want these things taken out of their lives. The challenge, of course, is this. These things that get in the way of our loving Christ, these people, these relationships, we've often grown very attached to them. And so ridding them of of them from our lives is intensely painful at times. All genuine believers who have experienced this know why the Holy Spirit speaks of a large sword and not a boning knife. This is death. This is the life of the cross. This is self-denial that we do because we love Jesus. And it's part of what marks off a genuine believer from a counterfeit. Luke later says in 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. All who would follow Christ will, out of love for him, allow God to cut out of their hearts whatever stands as a rival to him. This can be a person. It can be a relationship in our lives that's not pleasing to Jesus. It can be an unhealthy attachment to someone who's become an idol to us. It can be a car or a boat or any possession. It can be a hobby or a pastime or an activity or a habit or addiction that we've allowed to capture our heart and that we've in some way put in the place of Christ. That gets cut out, and it's painful. But the pain is temporary, because any death to self we experience as we deny ourselves the treasures of this world ultimately results in resurrection in this life as well as the next, and that brings joy. The temporary pain of self-denial gives way to rugged and lasting joy as we discover that Jesus is far sweeter, far more satisfying than what we have been wrongly putting in his place. After death comes resurrection. Finally, in this story, we see Jesus brings the ultimate sense of fulfillment. The ultimate sense of fulfillment. Before Jesus, Anna and Simeon are presumably happy people, but they both imply that they are in some way unfulfilled. It's when they meet the Messiah that they are complete. For Anna, her joy becomes full because she now knows that her people's redemption has come. For Simeon, upon meeting Jesus, he said in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon wasn't ready to die until he met Jesus. In that way, he reflects us. Now he can depart this world in peace, knowing that God had now fulfilled his promise to him that he would not die before he had seen this Savior, the salvation of his people. Jesus brings lasting and sturdy, eternal deliverance, consolation, and fulfillment, along with temporary pain and division. This is so honest here. This morning as we sit here, we need to ask ourselves, where am I in relation to all of this? Where am I in relationship to the celebration of Jesus' birth that we see in this text? Have you received the consolation that Christ brings? Have you seen the enormity and self-destructive nature of your sin and come to Christ for cleansing and new life? Maybe you're someone who's all right with 
people when they talk about God or religion or spirituality, as long as it's generic. But when people start going on about Jesus, that's when you start to become very uncomfortable. If that's true of you, then out of his love for you, Jesus is revealing to you the spiritual condition of your heart, that you hate Jesus apart from his work. If that describes you, confess your sin, humble yourself, come to Christ so that you can know true forgiveness and the joy of the Lord as your strength. Sometimes something is missing in our lives and Jesus ultimately, in an ultimate sense, fills that God-shaped void. He is our deliverance. He's our redeemer. He's our consolation. Like Simeon, none of us are ready to die until we meet Jesus. So don't leave here today without remembering these words of warning from Luke 20. Everyone who falls on that stone, the cornerstone Christ, will be cut to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Finally, maybe you're a follower of Christ, you're genuinely a follower of Jesus, but you're struggling with Jesus surgically removing something from your life that has become way too precious to you. For you, the truth is simple. Just die and get it over with. Easy to say. Just die and get it over with so that you can live with more joy in Jesus. Break off the relationship, sell the idol, give up the consuming passion or practice or habit so that you can live more fully for Christ. May God give us the grace to receive all that Jesus brings to us this Christmas for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for the consolation and deliverance and redemption that Jesus brings. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we know you have taken us, as we sang earlier this morning, out of enslavement. We were so enslaved we didn't even know we hated you. We were so enslaved we didn't know how bad our sin was. We were ignorant. That's how enslaved we were. And yet you, God, in your grace, you opened our eyes, you showed us our sin, and you showed us the cross. And you gave us the grace to run to Jesus in faith and receive the grace that he brings by his blood. Father, we thank you for the consolation. God, we also thank you for the reminder that all of us need to die to anything in our hearts that are more important to us than Jesus by the amount of time we give them or obsessions with them. And Father, I just pray for myself. I pray for all of us who are struggling in that regard. Give us the grace to just die and get it over with and move on and know the joy of the Lord that comes when that happens. And Father, if there is anyone here who's never come to know you, they don't know they hate you. They've never seen their sin the way you see it. They've never seen their sin in a way so that they know the only answer is to run to Jesus. God, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would reveal that to them, just as Simeon promised you would do. God, would you do that through Christ, by the Spirit of God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.